Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Some highlights from uh, stuff that if you are on schedule, you have already read and uh, not going to do a verse-by-verse or even psalm by psalm teaching, just some uh, things that jumped off the page at me. And uh, you can open your Bibles to Psalm 8. And let's read it. It's a short psalm. Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And this, of course, is uh, one of the main features of this psalm is David contemplating creation and praising God, the creator, uh, for the diversity and the magnificence of creation. Um, but there, is, uh, there are a couple things I want to point out about this psalm, and, and one of them uh, I know we've talked about before in verses 3 and 4 when, it's, when he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? This has been, I believe, misinterpreted by many people who see, uh, they, they kind of, uh, they... they they turn this into a uh, Carl Sagan kind of psalm instead of a King David kind of psalm, which would be, wow, we are, we are so minuscule compared to the size of the cosmos when you see how big just the solar system is and then the bigness of our galaxy and then galaxy clusters and so on and so forth and then these distance you look at the distances involved in the masses of these stars, and now they're discovering stars with planets, and there's trillions of them. What is man in the face of all that? But that's not what David is saying. He's not saying, once I can see, he's not saying since I see that creation is so big, wow, I'm so small, Lord. How could you even? How could you even waste your time with me? I'm nothing. I'm a speck of dust. I'm less than a speck of dust compared to the vastness of creation. Again, not what he's saying. It's sort of the difference. He's actually contemplating the greatness of man. He knows. He knows from the, from the written word and he knows from personal experience that God does take an interest in man. That God has spoken to man and through man and is intimately involved in the affairs of our lives. And David says, when I consider the heavens, which are the work of your fingers... What must I be? What must man be that you would take thought of us? It's sort of the difference between saying, who are you? And saying, who are you? Remember that scene in, uh, anybody like the Princess Bride? Anybody like that movie? 
Do you remember when uh, Inigo was fighting the man in black when he's fighting? I won't tell you who the man in black is in case you haven't seen it. But Inigo is a very confident, well-trained swordsman, and he just knows he's going to beat this guy, so he's, he's dueling him left-handed. And uh, as they progress through the battle, he realizes he's facing a swordsman who is of considerably better, greater skill. And at one point in the battle, he drops his sword and says, Who are you? And he wouldn't tell him. But that's it. It's like, wow, you realize it. And the same way, we turn that back on us. It's not, oh, who am I? It's, who am I? What is man? God has created us to be great. He's created us in his image. goes on to say, and this is the other point I wanted to make about this psalm, talk a little bit about angels. Actually, this next verse where it says, you've made him a little lower than the angels. uh, Some Bibles, including the one you have, might say a little lower than God. Uh, that, uh, that word Elohim is, uh, is translated God. Uh, so people say, now wait a second, and this is significant, or it might be, because if we're created just a little lower than God, then maybe we're over the angels. Might be saying just the, just the opposite. Instead of saying a little lower than the angels, we're a little lower than God, and that means we're a little higher than the angels. And uh, there's some who make this argument. And in a sense, we are. You know, there's a, there's a verse in Hebrews that says, we will judge angels. All right? Uh, so which, which is greater, man or angel? And it's really kind of like uh, apples and oranges, all right? Angels, by their nature, in their state, uh, they are a... I mean, let's face it. When an angel appeared to man, angels were not tempted to worship man, but man was tempted to worship angels. They are powerful beings. They are spirit beings, all right? Uh, They can do things that you and I can't yet. But I do believe uh, in our uh, glorified bodies, uh, we will be uh, manifesting greater power than even that. Angels are ministering spirits sent by God. They are created by God. They're glorious creatures, but they are not created in the image of God in the way that you and I are. And I want to, uh, the reason I want to spend just a minute or two on this is because there's been some flaky teaching about angels out there. And this isn't going to be, I'm not going to spend the rest of the night talking about angels. I want to go through three or four more psalms tonight. But uh, while we're on the subject briefly of angels, because, again, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that angels are ministering spirits and that they actually minister to us And because of what is probably the correct translation here, we're created a little lower than God and therefore a little higher than the angels. There's been teaching out there. Maybe some of you have heard it. I've never heard it taught here, thank God. uh, That you actually can order your angels around. That you can send angels on missions. You can tell them. They are ministering spirits after all. They're, they're here to serve us and therefore speak to your angels. Command them to... Uh, I was in a prayer meeting one time. I won't say where it was. Doesn't matter. Wasn't here. Where uh, the speaker was saying... The, the leader of this prayer meeting was saying... We're, we're, and we were taught at this prayer meeting. It's like we're going to focus on finances. You know, we believe that God wants us to prosper... Uh, so, but instead of saying, you know, God bless us, instead of, instead of focusing on the tithe, instead of this, today what we're going to do is command our angels to go out and gather wealth. And, 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 and then 
as the leader prayed, it didn't sound, it wasn't a goofy-sounding prayer. It was simply based on what I consider to be faulty doctrine. We are not to spend our time in prayer commanding angels to do anything. They serve, when they serve us, when they minister to us, they do that at God's command. They are his to command. And when he commands them to do things for us, again, that's his command. It's not ours. The reason this is a dangerous doctrine, you're just one step away from doing what, what uh, people of other uh, traditions, I believe, again, it's a very flawed tradition, when people pray to saints. You know, our dearly departed. Uh, I'm going to pray to Uncle Joe because he was a good guy, and I know he's there, and uh, he's up there now. He's probably got Jesus' ear. Or we pray to the Virgin Mary because, hey, who's got Jesus' ear more than his mother? So we'll pray to Mary because she's more approachable than God the Father is. And all these saints, patron saints of this, patron saints of that, since we can relate to these guys, they were one of us. Well, we know better than that, right? Uh, But how is addressing a creature, a spirit creature, telling them to go forth and do something that you need done in the spirit realm, how is that any different than praying to a saint? Our prayers are to be directed to the Father in the name of the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Our prayers are directed to God. All right? The only time we are told to address spirits is when we cast out demons. And then, even then, we don't enter into a conversation with them. All right? We cast them out. All right. So, anyway, there's that about angels. And uh, we'll move on from Psalm 8. We, I don't want to, again, I, I want to spend too much time in any one psalm. There's a few I want to get to. And even then, I don't think we're going to be here super long. Uh, in Psalm, uh, let's look at Psalm 10. That you will notice, have noticed, I'm sure, in a lot of these early psalms, there's a, there's a common theme of uh, God, why do the wicked prosper? What, will, how long will you wait to rescue me from my enemies? When are you going to show yourself strong? Uh, and uh, here in Psalm 10, we kind of see this again in uh, beginning of, let's just read the first four verses first. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. And this is, of course, a recipe for continuing in evil. Even for people who... Uh, were raised to know better, who once believed in God, once you begin to take steps that you know are counter to God and his word, and then you don't correct yourself and you continue to take those steps, it gets easier and easier to the point where God is no longer even in your thoughts. It's a lot easier to continue to sin when you don't think about God, right? And meditating on God is, a great, is the best protection against falling into sin. Uh, certainly habitual sin. If, you're, if, you're, if you uh, regularly pursue God, meditate on God, you're quick to repent. In, uh, let's skip down to verse 11. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. 
And this again, what's it? That for whatever reason, the wicked who persists in his wickedness, and the longer he goes and the longer he gets away with it, the more he's able to convince himself, I'm never going to have to answer for this. God's not paying attention to this. I'll never have to stand before him and give an account for this stuff. And so then here's the prayer in verse 14. But you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none, and so on. This, uh, th- this uh, you can underline your hand there in, uh, in verse 14. And also in verse 12, O oh God, lift up your hand. This, is, uh, this is, gets to be the prayer when society fails us. I want you to imagine, but I don't want you to mope about it. I, want, I don't want you to adopt a gloom and doom mentality. We've talked many times about how it certainly looks like our society. Uh, land of the free, home of the brave, you know, the most, here we are, still enjoying great freedom of religion, but we are moving and moving more and more quickly away from God, and not just in a general sense where people aren't paying attention to God, but where it is getting more and more difficult, uh, in, you know, maybe incrementally, and it's still not difficulty in the terms of, uh, at least not yet, thank God, of being truly persecuted in the biblical sense. But I believe we're heading that direction. More and more difficult to do the things that God's commanded us to do. How it will, can we even imagine at this point uh, uh, more and more restrictions on where we can have Bibles, where we can say the name of Jesus, where we can call sin, sin? We certainly can imagine that, can't we? Uh, And what do we do when society fails us? When the law fails us? When when the instruments of justice that are in our world fail to provide justice for us? And this happens all over the world. And this is what's happening here. Uh, God, you know, the the systems that that are in place here in, in human government, they have failed the weak. And the wicked and the strong are abusing their strength, they're abusing their wealth, and they continue to make it harder uh, on the poor, on the weak. So God, you're going to have to do something. Raise your hand. And this is where we find ourselves when everything else fails. Uh, I think I mentioned this before, and nobody complained. At least you didn't complain to me. Uh, So I'm going to use this illustration again. I already talked about one movie. Uh, but I love the opening scene of The Godfather on TV. Uh, there's a scene, I'm, I don't have, you don't have to raise your hand, you don't have to admit you've seen it, but there's, there's a scene at the beginning, at the very beginning, just to sort of, uh, it's a little bit of an exposition, lets you know what kind of guy we're dealing with here in Don, v, uh, Don Corleone. And he's, stand, he's sitting behind this desk while this, uh, this undertaker, this... this uh, funeral director is coming before him and he's telling this story about how his daughter went out with this boy uh, and uh, the boy tried to take advantage of her but she kept her honor uh, but as a result of this uh, this boy and her and his friends beat her up messed her face up she had to go to the doctor now she'll she'll never be beautiful again and and and, uh, and Marlon Brando you know the godfather's like well what do you want me to do and he whispers in his ear and they're having this conversation where basically this, this guy is asking for uh, uh, Don Corleone to provide justice for him. He wants him to kill him. And uh, Godfather says, I'm not going to do that. That's not justice. Your daughter's still alive. Well, make them suffer then. 
And then he asks him this question. He says, why did you go? Because here's his complaint. He says, I went to the police. And they, they arrested these boys, but when they, they, they went on trial, uh, the judge suspended their sentence. And this guy felt insulted by this, and then the undertones of, of racism there. He's, he's Italian. The judge wasn't going to take him seriously. And, uh, and so Don Corleone asked him, why, why did you go to the police? Why didn't you come to me first? And, you know, forces him to admit that he, that he didn't want to be in his debt. But then he makes this statement, if you had come to me first, then this scum who ruined your daughter would be suffering this very day. And if a man like you should make enemies, they would become my enemies. And here's what, this is as far as I'll go. I won't bring the Godfather up into it the rest of the night. But this idea that rather than wait until, and we kind of talked about this uh, last week, rather than wait until everything else fails and then turning to God, How about we go to him first? How about he is always our first recourse for justice, for deliverance, for healing, and for provision? I'm not saying that God doesn't answer our prayers when we turn to him as a last resort. The key is not, ultimately the key is not when, it's are we turning to him in faith? And even if we wait until last resort, maybe it takes us that long to get our head on straight, get our attention, whatever. If we turn to him in faith, he'll hear us, he'll answer. But how much better for God to always be the first thing we respond, the the first one we turn to, the first way we respond is always in the direction of God and his word. And instead of saying, well, uh, and again, can God work his justice through the courts, through the police? Can he work his healing through doctors? He can. But how about we leave that up to him? Rather than saying, I'm going to do this first, and if that doesn't work, I mean, I'll try this. If that doesn't work, I'll try this. And then when we're out of options, oh, God, will you please do something? You raise your hand now that everything else has failed. Let's don't wait till we get to that spot. Let's walk day to day in confidence, knowing that we already trust in God. Amen? Okay, let's go to 13. Stop talking about the Godfather and start talking about Father God, right? (laughs) All right, another short psalm, so let's read it. How long, O Lord? Hmm, that's kind of a theme there, isn't it? How do we kind of see that again? Uh, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I'm not going to say a lot about this other than to say it reinforces what we talked about last Wednesday when we were talking about sowing in the times of tears. This is once again David's plea for rescue. We don't have the specific circumstances. Sometimes we do. Sometimes there's an intro to these psalms that tells you exactly what David is going through and we can conjecture all we want, but we don't have that here. But obviously David's calling out in times of trouble. He feels persecuted. He feels like he's this close to being under the the foot of his enemy. And one of the things that he uh, really is uh, upset about is he doesn't want to give his enemy the opportunity to rejoice over this position. I don't want to die and have my enemy taking credit for this 
and, and rejoicing. You, you, you need to vindicate me. He's in a bad spot. But what does he say? But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the faith. This is sowing praise and worship in times of tears. This is continuing to do the right thing in the moments when you don't feel like doing the right thing. This is singing when you don't feel like singing. This is praising when you don't feel like praising because you're in trouble. But you look back at the record. God has dealt bountifully with me. That's his character. He will continue to deal bountifully with me. He will deliver me from this trouble. Therefore, I will sing. I will not wait until I see the manifestation before I give him the praise that he is due. Chapter 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great, there they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Now, first of all, it's interesting in this psalm that David here is not just talking about the wretchedness of his enemies, but of everybody. When he says there's none who do good. This is what Paul, this is what, the, when Paul said there's none righteous, no, not one, this is actually the psalm he is quoting in Romans, okay? And uh, when you look down at that last verse when he says, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, you know, when we were reading Psalm 126 last week, we were talking about that very thing, that this, this was a, a psalm about the the literal return after 70 years of captivity in Babylon uh, they you know they sow in tears the 70 years in Babylon they come back they reap in joy this is not what David's talking about this is David this is hundreds of years before the captivity this is still when 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 uh, Judah and Jerusalem were at, the, were at the top of the heap you know David the great king the successful king and now he's looking around and seeing all the the wickedness of mankind and talking about how we'll rejoice when, the, when God returns us from our captivity. And once again, this is, this is a, just a shining example, again, of how David was a man after God's own heart. And even then, even a, you know, a thousand years before Christ, was able to see the bigger picture, the bigger enemy, and the bigger captivity. He wasn't referring... Uh, to the Philistines, he wasn't referring certainly to the Babylonians, and he wasn't referring, I believe, uh, to any type of uh, of captivity to a particular nation or nation state. I, I believe, in the in the broad sense, he's referring to our captivity to sin, how we are captive to the sin nature, and this is these are the things that um, this this sin nature, of course, is is exactly what produces evil works in our lives. And David, who of course wrote many psalms 
that uh, prophesy the coming of the Messiah, this, I believe, is what he's talking about, the ultimate returning from captivity. When, when God sends his Christ, his Messiah, to release us from the true enemy of our souls, which is Satan and sin itself. Right? And now in... Uh, Let's move ahead to this, because I really want to get to this. In, in Psalm 15, uh, beginning in verse 1. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. If you look, and we're not going to turn there, but if you, you can look, you can make a, you can jot a note there, right in your Bible if you want. You can look at uh, Isaiah 33. Uh, around verse 15, and you'll see a similar list when Isaiah is listing the qualifications of the righteous. And there's, what, six or seven things there, right? And then if you look at uh, Micah, chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give the firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Then here's the answer. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So here, David comes up with this list. Who's qualified to stand on the holy hill of God? Well, the person who does these uh, six, seven things, depending on how you count them. And that's distilled from hundreds of laws. In the Mosaic Law and the Levitical Law, David boils it down to these few things. Micah boils it down to these three things. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with, the, with, uh, with your God. Jesus, when they ask him what's the greatest commandment, I love, uh, Ravi Zacharias always points this out. He says, the amazing thing to me is he didn't give them one. You would expect him to, to it just, here it is, it's one. But he gives them two. You remember what they are, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. He says, in those two commands, the whole law and the prophets hang. You can boil everything in the law and the prophets on those two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you look at what love means, you realize, he said, well, how, can, how can me having kind feelings toward God and kind feelings toward my fellow man be fulfilling the law? That's, we're not talking about kind feelings. We're talking about love, an act of the will, to always seek the good of. It really is an amazing thing and when you look at the Ten Commandments, you know, you've got commandments that are directed, that speak directly about our relationship with God. You've got commandments that speak about our relationship with one another. Four vertical and six horizontal, I think. 
And, uh, and sometimes, you know, we're, if, if, if we get, it's kind of a religious spirit where we get so focused. Well, absolutely. This is what the, the Pharisees were guilty of, according to Jesus. You know, you give your tithes of mint and cumin and this, and then you, you ignore the weightier matters of the law. You won't take care of your relatives. And because you're telling them, well, I'd love to help you out, Mom, but I've already promised this money uh, to the temple. I promised it to God. You know, Jesus is like, you know, you're, you, you, you should be, absolutely. You should continue your tithing, but you, you're, you're forgetting. You're, you're, you're focusing on this so much, you're forgetting this. And this is just as important. If you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, you're not fulfilling the great commandment of God. Right? Because Jesus was quoting the Old Testament even when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't make that up. I mean, he spoke it. He was a, it's his word, right? But let's look at one more thing in uh, 18. I'm going to read this quickly. I'm just going to read the first six verses and then... Uh, actually, I won't. I'll tell you when I stop. <laughs> in, uh, in verse 1, I will love you, O Lord, with my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. The pangs of death surrounded me and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry came before him. I absolutely love how David describes God's response. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew and flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones. And coals of fire, he sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightning in abundance, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. I love that picture. And obviously David is being poetic here. But no matter how big. David didn't say, I woke up in a poopy mood and I was a little sad and I had a few body aches, and I was mad at my neighbor, so I prayed, uh, and then God did this. He was, the pangs of death surrounded me. He was in dire, dire straits. He would say, you know, he would say, my whole world is caving in. He was facing immense pressure, immense trials. It looks big. And David is the one, he's the one we get the, maybe the best example. You know, the, the, the story that he's, if people, people know nothing or next to nothing about their Bible, they know about David and Goliath. And David goes out to face this giant. And everybody, you know, the, Saul says, you know, he's been a warrior from his youth and you're just a youth. Everybody saw David in comparison. They saw him, he seemed small compared to Goliath, but David saw Goliath compared to God and saw him as nothing more than an uncircumcised Philistine. So David, 
He's surrounded by the, the weight of the world, and he cries out to God. And here's the point he's making. No matter how big your problem is, when God moves, your problem shrinks. I was surrounded by all these enemies, pangs of death. I felt like dying, felt like I was going to die, and I cried out to God. And when he answered, thunder, lightning, hailstones, clouds, water, everything, all of nature in this picture is, is rising up to fight David's battle. And suddenly those problems are gone. Suddenly those problems seem small. David's able to see them. We're able to see them through this psalm from the perspective of heaven compared to God. Stand up with me. And we're just going to thank God for his bigness, thank God for his goodness. I wanted to get to that point in 18 because it kind of ties in with where we started in Psalm 8 when I consider the heavens. And I don't know how many of you, you know that I'm a big astronomy fan. I love spending time just staring up into the sky, just contemplating the stars, the planets, the motion of these things, and uh, just appreciating the vastness of it. And I believe, and I know that as a Christian, I have an appreciation for that. And I do. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a spiritual thing uh, to, from time to time just to be there, to stand out there and contemplate the vastness of the heaven and consider that it is the work of the fingers of God. And it helps me to get all my problems in perspective. The beautiful thing is we don't have to stop at the poetic expression. We don't have to say... Oh, well, my problems don't matter because look how big everything is. No, the application is what David says. Because we serve this great big God and because he does take thought of me because I'm created in his image, I can expect that he will move on my behalf. Even better, as covenant children in the new covenant, we rejoice in the fact that he has. This great big God is for me. And if I make an enemy, he becomes God's enemy. I have an enemy, and he's already God's enemy, right? How do I know he's for me, though? How do I really know he's for me? I know that because of the cross. He's not good in the way that I would describe many of the people I know. Ah, good guy, good guy. He's good, been very good to me. He really loves me, and he really loves you. How do I know? Because he didn't withhold anything from me. I was in such a state, and guess what? You were too, that nothing could help me. Nothing could save me. Nothing could get me back on good ground with God, except the death of his son. And he didn't withhold that. He did not withhold Jesus from me. And Jesus, God the Son, willingly went to the cross to die my death because he loved me. And if he loves me that much, believe me, he loves me enough to hear me when I cry out to him, to respond when I cry out in faith to him, and when I claim by faith the things that he said belong to me. Stop Thank God. I believe I'm in, a, I'm in a church today that knows, that generally knows better than this. I just know how often I have to remind myself of it. And so I'm passing this on to you. You need to be reminded of it too. Stop. Just catch yourself. If you ever feel like you are crawling before God and begging for something, stop it. Because that's not how he wants you to approach him. 
He has made you righteous by placing you in Christ. He sees you as righteous, and he desires that we come before him boldly to receive the things that he promises the righteous. If you go ahead and read on in Psalm 18, it can get a little bit. Uh, David's like, well, you did this for me because of my righteousness. You responded because of my integrity. You've got to keep in mind, we do know the, the background of this psalm. He was running from Saul, and he had been perfectly right in his attitude and his dealings with Saul. He did not deserve anything that Saul was doing. But there's still that connection between righteousness, you know, God rewarding righteousness. And he does that. But see, we get the benefits of that reward. He rewards us for Christ's righteousness. Do we deserve it in and of ourselves? We don't. But we're entitled to it because we are in Christ. So boldly claim it. Boldly ask for it. This pleases God. Don't say, oh, God, I know I don't deserve it, but I I know you can. I just pray that you will. Say, God, I did nothing to deserve this, so I thank you so much that Jesus did everything necessary. You have said, this belongs to me. Healing belongs to me. Provision belongs to me. Protection belongs to me. Deliverance belongs to me. I receive it by faith and thank you for it now in Jesus' name. He's a good God, but you've got to be in that relationship with him. So if you're not, let's make that decision tonight. If you've never made Jesus Christ your Lord, you've never invited him into your heart, to be the Lord of your life, to be your Savior, make that decision tonight. You simply have to recognize that the death he died, he died because you needed that. I needed that. And if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We're going to sing a song right after I pray. As soon as we start singing, you want to pray that prayer tonight. You want to get saved. You want to become a believer. Come up here and let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these psalms. Thank you for the opportunity to meditate on them together as a congregation. I pray, Lord God, that you open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to the things that we read as we go through this book this month. That you show us things about yourself and about prayer and about praise and about our relationship with you and our relationship with one another uh, so that we are richer, stronger, fuller and better equipped to live the gospel and preach the gospel this time in this place. I pray, Lord, now if there's anybody in the sound of my voice who does not know you as Lord, does not know you as Savior, that they would come to know you tonight. Speak to that person. Say the things that only you can say. Convict the, only, the way that only you can convict. Convince the sinner of their need for salvation and grant the wisdom, the boldness, the humility, everything they need to come boldly and receive that free gift of eternal life tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you come. Let's go ahead and sing. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.